Let's pray. Lord, we have all said those things to you. We have been disappointed with you. We have questioned you. We have looked at this world and we have blamed you for our actions. God, I know that right now our culture, our society is in a very scary place. We look around, we hear stories of violence, of atrocities, and we don't know, we don't know quite what to do with it. But God, this same turbulent times happened thousands of years ago and you spoke to a young warrior and you gave him your name in that time and that name was something that sustained him and the nation of Israel and I pray God that that name would be as relevant to us today I thank you for this time I pray spirit of the most high God that you would come you'd capture our imaginations our hearts and our minds you would speak to us in Jesus name amen well, good morning and welcome. Uh, if you're visiting with UCC, thank you so much for joining us. One of the things you need to know about us is we don't take ourselves too seriously. Um, whenever Brian leads worship, I'm always just, I'm excited to hear what he's going to say. And uh, it's, it's kind of like an FM DJ, Brian. is like, you're never quite sure what they're going to say, but it's always entertaining. Um, we're going to continue on. Oh, before I can go on here, I want to say thank you to Lauren last week for preaching. Uh, she did a fabulous job. I listened to her sermon. Um, I want to say thank you to her to giving, uh, for preaching to give my wife and I time away, which we uh, thoroughly enjoyed. We're going to continue on a series. We started off a few weeks, and next week we're going to wrap this one up. Um, we're going to kind of conclude the series. But this morning I'm calling the teaching the God of Peace. Uh, but let's recap what we talked about two weeks ago, just to kind of give and make sure everyone's on the same page. We've been looking at the names of God. So in the Bible, now this is going to be kind of, this is going to stretch your noodle a little bit. In the Bible, people actually met God, m- met God. And when, he, they, when they met God, he gave them a name. And we said this from the very first week of the series was that God's name meant something. And by the way, if, in case you've missed any of the series, they are up online on our website under uh, Sundays and Sermons Online. Uh, all of them are there, so you can kind of go back and, and listen if, you, if you've missed any of them. But it, we've, we said before that the, in the Bible, a name meant something. It meant something. And as a matter of fact, a name actually meant a destiny. It, it, it kind of dictated uh, what you would do in the future. And what was interesting is that whenever God would have an encounter with somebody, he would give them his name. And so what's important about that is whenever God gives his name, it actually reveals something about his character. It reveals something about his relationship. Um, So two weeks ago, we looked at the name Jehovah M. Kadesh. And we said that the name meant uh, the God who makes holy, the God who sanctifies. And remember, holy meant separate, right? We think holy means pure right? I'm unholy. I don't feel holy enough, right? And we use that for a word that means like we don't feel, we feel impure. Now, that's not what holiness meant. Holiness meant God taking something of common use and using it for his purpose to separate, right? That's what holiness meant in the biblical concept. Um, we looked at Ephesians four seventeen to 18, where this is how God describes our life with him. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. You, I, those of us who call ourselves Christ followers, disciples of Jesus, we are separated from this world, from the values, from culture, from society, and we are used now for God's purpose. At least that's what's supposed to happen. 
that was the intent. That's always been the intent. And the problem can be that we kind of go back and forth a little bit sometimes as far as, you know, the, the kingdom of heaven's values and, and, and how God wants it. That's kind of what we looked at um, uh, a couple of weeks ago. If you have your Bibles, we're going to go in the Old Testament and we're going to look at a book called Judges. The book of Judges is actually a really interesting book because it is a book of transitions, right? So we, we talk about the first five books of the Bible, some we call the, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the Tanakh. It is the law, right? So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This is the foundation of the Bible. This is God the Father revealing his nature and his characteristic to humanity, right? Remember, he chooses a people, he chooses a nation, and he calls them out, right? So after those five books, then you have the book of jo- uh, Joshua, Judges, and then Ruth, right? These are the books of transition. And in this time period... Israel is still floundering, trying to figure out who they are, right? So they've been brought out of the promised land. I want to make sure you understand this uh, historically. They've been brought out of the promise, they've been out of Egypt, sorry, and they're now in the promised land. The book of Joshua was a book of conquest. God says, here's the promised land, now take it. Oh, by the way, it's inhabited, right? And so make sure you understand that. So now they crossed over the Jordan River and they began to kind of uh, conquer what God had promised them. Now, the book of Judges is an interesting book because what happens in this book is something I think is very relevant to us today. Because in the book of Judges, you have um, a very turbulent time. Now, the book of Judges starts off like this. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites. Now, the Canaanites are the uh, big bad boogeyman in the Old Testament for the Israelites. The Canaanites are a group of people who believed in child sacrifice and, 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 and temple prostitution and, uh, and on all sorts of things were, which were at the exact opposite of what God would have for humanity. Right? Remember I said to you that in the Old Testament, you could read it and going, wow, I, I don't understand why God does that. The reason God does what he does is because he has a certain way of looking at humanity. Every human being, male, female, uh, child, has value to God. And because of that, God will not allow anyone to abuse, to hurt, to harm his creation. And so when you run into the Canaanites, they have no regard for human life at all. No, life has no value to them. And so remember, one of the Canaanites' uh, rituals were to take your firstborn child and to burn it alive. And you, you go, wow, that's, that's horrible. You say that now, but imagine how God would feel about that thousands of years ago. He, he is out of his mind uh, horrified that anybody would do that to a child. And remember as well, too, as it was back in the Bible, as it is today, the most vulnerable of our culture is women and children. That's always been the case. And when you look at the Bible and the law and how God reveals himself, women and children are protected. Now you're like, uh, even as I say that, we're like, women are like, I don't need to be protected. I, women, I, I get that you're strong, independent women. You know, I get, I get that, all that. Right? But in, in ancient times, right, it was, it, was, it, was, it was strength and armies and, and that type of life. And so it's hard for us to wrap our minds around uh, unless we watch Lord of the Rings or something like that, right? But, uh, well, even then, you know, you get the idea, right? So the Bible is always about protecting the vulnerable and the weak. That's God's heart. So when you run into a religion or a culture that doesn't do that, it's a clash of values. So the book of Judges starts off with this. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who is to go up for us to fight against the Canaanites? So the book of Judges starts off with Joshua, the successor of Moses, dying. Now, we know this, that when leadership transitions, it's always a kind of a scary time. 
right now we're looking at in the American political system and what's going on down there. And I, I don't know about you, but I want to volunteer to build a wall because no matter who wins, it just doesn't seem like a good thing for us, right? It just it seems like a kind of a scary time right now, right? But in transitions of power, people are uncertain of what's going to happen next. Well, in the nation of Israel, Joshua, who has been their leader, their commander, their general of their army, he has conquered uh, Israel for them. But he's now, he's, he's now passed on. So, of course, everyone looks around going, Okay, who's going to lead us now? What's going to happen, right? Because whichever way you want to look at it, leadership is important, right? It helps direct and guide and give a vision and focus for a group of people. And Joshua now passes on, and and God has not indicated yet who is going to uh, lead them. Now, but look at chapter 2, verse 2 and 3. This is uh, what God says here. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. So God's saying something very important to him. He's saying, listen, Joshua's gone, but I'm still here. He has gone, but I have not. So he's trying to reassure them. And the second part is this. God's saying to them very, very clearly, just because Joshua's gone, doesn't mean you have to go kind of crazy, right? Like if parents go away or kids go off to college, university, you know, things can happen. Why? Because the extrinsic motivation of, a, of, a, of, a, of an authority figure is gone and, and things can kind of go eh, a little bit uh, kind of crazy from there, right? Well, God's saying, listen, Joshua's gone, but I'm still here. But look what he says in verse 2 there. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why you have done this? I have also said, I will not drive them out before you. They will become traps for you and their gods will become snares to you. So God's saying to the people, listen, Joshua's gone. He kept you where you should go. But now that he's gone, don't start serving other gods. Don't start going off in, in different directions. But now here's the, here is probably the most terrifying scripture in almost in, in the entire Bible. Because what happens here is what I see happening in our culture today. In Joshua chapter 2, it starts off like this. It says, after the whole generation have been gathered to their ancestors, that's Joshua and his peer group. They all pass on because they're elderly. Another generation grew up, and look what the Bible says, who neither... Uh, who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. I, I worked with young adults for decades, and uh, one of the things I saw, and I heard people talking about, pastors all the time talking about, uh, groups talking about, why are young adults leaving the church? Why are they, you know, um, leaving the church? And people are coming up with all these great theories, and, and I think there's some validity to it. But at the end of the day, I think this is where it comes down to. I think many young adults looked at their parents' faith and found it unconvincing. There's no passion, no desire, no, no, nothing, nothing convinced them that this was true and this is true by their behavior. And I think we're seeing a generation who neither knows God nor what God has done leaving the church. I think that's close to the truth. So when we look at the book of Joshua, we can see this historically and be going, huh, okay, right? Now, Please, as I say that, I, I don't mean to say to you that if you're a parent and you're a young adult or your child, is not, that I'm not laying it on your feet. I'm just saying I think the vast majority of, of passive Christianity in North America here today is, is leaving the church because their parents have not really instilled upon them what, what faith is about and, and how it's everything in our lives. And so the book of Joshua is the story of a group of people growing up now going, God, I don't really know about God. I don't know who he is. I don't know what he's done. Therefore, I'm going to live as I think I should live, right? So now, the book of Judges is this. Then the Lord raised up judges 
And of course, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking of Judge Dredd or, or you know, other, other really bad comic book movies. But these judges were leaders, right? Now, one of the most famous judges in the Bible is Samson, right? You know the story of Samson, Delilah, the hair, right? Uh, that, he was a judge. He was raised up by God, and he was, he was to lead the people against the, the, the offending culture, right? So the Bible says this, the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders, yet... They would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned from the ways of their ancestors who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. See what he's saying here? God says, okay, these people, the Canaanites, are oppressing you. They're attacking you. They are hurting you. I'm going to raise up a leader, a judge, to help you, right? And so they're like, yes, thank you. We, don't, we, we want these judges. We want them to help them. But then the judges pass on. They're like, oh. What have you done for me lately? And they go back to their ways before. So there's a pattern of behavior here, which is destructive. So when you look at the book of Judges, here's how you look at it. Throughout the lives of these judges, the narrator tells us Israel's behavior follows a consistent pattern. The people of Israel fall into evil. God sends a leader to save them. And once the judge dies, the people commit even greater evil. The book of Judges covers 300 years and sees some of the most turbulent times in Israel's history. And I think what's interesting about this book and what I'm about to teach you this morning is, of course, we are, are, we are transfixed by the television of what's happening, of what, what took place in Orlando. And we see this, and, and, and many of us as Christ followers, we're like, how do we respond? And I think the most, best response is grace and mercy and praying for, and, and, and just like the Bible says, mourn with those who mourn. And that's exactly how we should be responding, right? Because the world is getting, it's just getting crazy. My wife, um, she's, uh, she kind of wakes me up every morning and tells me an article or, or something that's happened around the world, right? I, I haven't even woken up yet. And like, did you hear about this? I'm like, I'm not even awake yet, right? But she, her Twitter feed was just find the worst news around and, and tell her husband about it, right? She is, uh, she kind of does that, right? But the thing is, though, right, whether it's in Orlando or whether it's in Paris or around the globe, we look at the news that's coming around the world, and part of us goes, how do I process this? How do I understand my response in this? And I think that in these times as well, too, Christians, non-Christians, people can do horrible things. Like, like I think Facebook or Twitter or these places only exist for angry people because that's all you kind of see, right, is these responses that are like, Please don't say that. Just, just please, just, just try to, you know, try to act human. You know, it's kind of something like that, right? The trolls are everywhere, and they're on every side, and they're in there. They exist, right? The Book of Judges takes place in such a time. We look around the world, and whether it's a war, whether it's a civil war, whether it's it's an act of violence, an act of terrorism, we look around the world, and we live in a turbulent time. And we say to ourselves, "How do we respond?" But not only how do we respond. What does God say to us? What name does God give us in this moment, in this time? And I think it's really interesting. So we're going to look at, um, depending on how you look at it, well, this most second most famous judge in the Bible. Um, so if you have your Bibles, turn to uh, Judges chapter 6. We're going to take a look at uh, the second most famous book in the, uh, judge in the book of Judges. His name is Gideon. Right? Now, you know the story of Gideon, but I want to kind of go a little bit deeper here to kind of give you some context of what's happening here in the book of Gideon. So in Judges chapter 6, verses 1 to 2, the writer, the narrator, is setting this table, setting the story for us of Gideon's life. 
The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Now, understand something. Now, take, the, take, take this into account here. This, 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 this people group are so strong, so powerful, that they would not even allow the Israelites to build villages, towns. Because whenever they did, the army would come in and would destroy everything, and people are scattered. If you want to keep a culture vulnerable, don't allow them to build homes. So look what the Bible says. They're living in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds, right? That's what they're reduced to, right? That's how they're living. They are on the run. They're fearful of their lives, and the, the Midianite army has just walked all over them, right? And not just once. They are in a seven-year cycle of this. So not only do you not have a home, you don't, how do you, how do you eat? How do you plant crops? How do you harvest crops if whatever you put in the ground is either destroyed or taken from you, right? So you can kind of get a sense today that what, what's, what, you know, what's happening back then, we can see a little bit of it as well today. We see displaced people groups all over the globe. We see violence that sends people around. And we hear stories of people who are refugees who are trying to find a way to make a living. We hear of refugee camps. Like we... This story, even though it's thousands of years old, it still bears relevance for us today because we're seeing this happen today, right? And so one of the things we're seeing here in the book of Judges is the nation of Israel should be secure, should be safe, but it is not. Now look what verse 3 to 6 says. Whenever the Israelites planted the crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land, and they ruined the crops all the way to Gaza, and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep, nor cattle, nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Do you see what's happening here? So in, in historically, the summer months, the spring and summer months, are the times that raiders raid, right? Um, one of my favorite shows on television is a show called Vikings. Uh, if you have not watched it, it's through History Channel. It's great. You missed out on it. It's, it's, good, it's a good show. But the Vikings would go, uh, uh, would go out in the spring and the summer months when it was warm to go pillage. Well, in the ancient times, that's what they did. It's spring and summer. Let's go conquer somebody. Let's go get plunder. Let's go get food. Well, They've been doing that. The Midianites, the Malachites, and other Asian people are, are, are going into this land, and they're raiding it. They're taking everything. But they're also bringing up their cattle and saying, eat everything. And the Israel cannot get a stronghold, cannot get a foothold in. So they're living, they're, they're barely existing on whatever food they can find, they can, what they can scavenge. And again, imagine the children, Right? Like how impoverished are the children in this particular moment, right? That every day you have to get up and you have to figure out how am I going to feed my family? We're, we are blessed to live in Canada where maybe perhaps we don't have to worry about that. But although I think sometimes we, we do maybe have that as well too. Well, Israel is living in a very turbulent time. There is no stability. There is no government. There is no crops. There's nothing. And in this time, finally, they go, oh, wait a minute, God. Let's remember God. I just want to say something to you. Sometimes when your life goes off the tracks, when you go in a valley, whatever metaphor I can throw out to you, it might be, and I don't want to say this always, but it might be God trying to get your attention. Maybe you've forgotten about him. Maybe in your abundance of your life, and you've, you forgot about God, and sometimes God kind of goes, okay, 
this is coming. I know it's going to come, but I hopefully I'm going to maybe, I'm going to give you an opportunity to turn back to me. Well, that's what God did to Israel. Now let's go on here because now we're going to have uh, a, the turning point, right? Verse 11 to 12. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak of Ophrah that belonged to the Joash, the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a winepress to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Right? Now, that part there, you go, oh, yeah, I know that. Wine is made in a wine press. In ancient times, a wine press was a large basin where you would crush, and it had a spout to capture the, um, the liquid, right? You'd crush wines. And again, you know, you have this image in your mind of like a barrel and, and people stomping in it, right? That's kind of how they would do it. They'd press it down. They'd crush the grapes to create wine. It's not ideal for wheat, right? It's actually a great covering for it, but it's not ideal for it, right? So what Gideon is trying to do, he's trying to hide from the Midianites. He's managed to scrounge up some wheat. Now, you have to separate the wheat from the actual stock itself before you can ground it and make flour for bread. So he's trying to thrash him. And, and again, it, it's, it's lifting up into the air, but because it's enclosed space, it's not a great space, he's inhaling it. You can just, just imagine him like just coughing and hacking, like, <laughs> right? But he's got to do this, and he's got to do it quickly because if the Midianites catch him, they may kill him and take all his food for his family. If he doesn't get this done, his family does not eat, right? That's how terrified he is, right? That's how scared he is, right? But look how the, uh, how the angel of the Lord approaches him. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. In that moment, as I've, I've kind of explained to you, I'm, and, and please understand, I'm trying to paint a picture of you, for you, of how impoverished these people are, right? How absolutely destitute Israel is. And for God to come along and saying, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. This is how, this is how Gideon responds, and I think we would respond the same way. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all the wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and give us into the hand of Midian. He's whining. But where's God? Why is he with us? And why has he abandoned us? Here's the thing that's interesting, right? Gideon is using language here, which is actually false. It's untrue. God did not abandon them. They abandoned God. Sometimes God will give us our choices, whether we like it or not. You pursue a path. You go after a relationship. You go on a path, and God's like, no, no, don't. No, no, don't, don't, don't. And you're like, no, I I got this. I got this. No, no, no. God's like, no, no, don't, don't. And you're like, God, I got this. God's like, here you go. You you don't understand where this path is going to lead you. You don't understand what you're about to do, but you, you know better than me, so... Here you go, right? Gideon says, God's abandoned us, but God's saying to Gideon, Gideon, you have abandoned me. I made a promise to Abraham. I made a promise to Moses. I made a promise to Joshua that if you guys listen to me and obey me and and live like I asked you to, I will always take care of you. I will always take care of you. And every parent in the room is like, yes, that's what I say to my kids all the time, right? It's like, this is what God's saying. but, But like children... Gideon saying to God, well, you've abandoned us. You've forgotten about us. Look how we're living. It's your fault, God. And God's like, I think you might be missing the point here, right? So Gideon turns around and he kind of whines to him, right? 
Now look at this one here. So God says to Gideon, Gideon, I want you to lead Israel. I'm raising you up as a judge. Now look at his response. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have. And Gideon's kind of chuckling. And, and, and save Israel out of the Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord. He's getting a little more respectful now. He's getting a little more humble here. Gideon replied, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least of my family. In other words, could you not have found somebody better? Somebody with more Facebook friends? Somebody has more likes on the Instagram account? Okay, can you find somebody maybe a little more popular, better looking, maybe uh, better armed? Can you not find that person, right? Gideon's like, I'm the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. Culturally, what he's saying is, Manasseh is this very small tribe. It's a very small group. And he's the least of that. And God's saying, he's saying to God, God, I'm all for this. Let's, let's, let's get, take back our land. I think he chose the wrong guy, though. It's not me, right? And of course, what happens next is Gideon's like, okay, Lord, I'll do it, but I'm going to lay out a fleece. If in the morning if it's wet, then I'll believe you. And God does it. Okay, that was good. I got lucky there. Okay, the next day God, I'm laying out a fleece and it has to be dry and everything else be wet. And that happens. Okay? So finally, after all these tests, he throws to God. He says, fine, fine, God, fine. I'll do it, right? And then God gives him his name. In verse 24, Gideon finally gives in and God gives him the name. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it the Lord is peace. To this day, it stands in Ophrah of the Abyssalites. The Lord is peace. The name means Jehovah Shalom. Now, the word shalom is a word that actually is so interesting, and that's the word we're going to center in on. In the time of trouble, in the time of violence, in the time of scarcity, in the time of destitution, you want the God who provides. You want the God who is strength, uh, who will take us there, right? But what maybe you don't want is the God who is peace. How do I make peace with somebody who's stronger than me, whose only purpose is, is, is to wipe me off the planet? How do I make peace with that person, right? But God builds, Gideon builds an altar and God says, I am Jehovah Shalom. Now the word shalom is an interesting word. It's not a word that we use. We, we say the word means peace. It actually doesn't mean peace. It means peace and a whole bunch of other things. Let me kind of give you an example here. In order to capture the unique nuance of the Hebrew word as it's used in specific contexts, translators have had to use the following English words. Wheel, welfare, completeness, to cause to be at peace, to make peace, peace offering, at rest, at ease, secure, safe, to finish well, to prosper, to be whole, to be perfect, to be victorious. In other words, in any given context, shalom can mean any of the above English words. So to say the word shalom means peace is actually, um, like, like if God could use hashtags, you know, hashtag shalom, but hashtag like, like victory, hashtag mighty war, like, like, like it's, it's so deep, right? The English language, the only way the English language gets deep is in our vernacular, our slang. Right, because it can mean a bit more, right? But in the Hebrew language, there are layers to it. And so when you use the word shalom, it's not just peace. Because look, it also means a peace offering, secure, safe, finish well, victorious, right? Like, and there's so much more to it. But shalom's not just a word, though. It's a Hebrew idea. Let me show you something else here. But at its fullest, shalom captures a Hebrew vision 
of human society. The non-human world and even the environment and the integrated and relational whole where the wolf and the lamb shall feed together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Shalom is a theology of hope of Israel and of the early church. It's vision of what the world will someday be. So shalom isn't just simply peace. It's not just a greeting, right? If you've been to Israel, if you've, if you've been around uh, Jewish people, they will greet each other with shalom, but they will also say goodbye as shalom, right? But shalom wasn't just simply a greeting. It's not just simply peace. It's a vision of what could be. It's a vision of the completeness of who God is, right? Now, there are three aspects. As I began to say the word shalom, that kind of popped out at me. The first thing is that shalom was the beginning and will be the end. So when we talk about creation, we talk about shalom, right? So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, God saw all that he made and it was very good. The Jewish translators, the Jewish way of looking at it, the good that the Bible says, it was very shalom. Now there's a guy named Cornelius Tantega who kind of talks about this. And this is what he says, and I love it. The webbing together of God humans and all creation and justice fulfillment and delight is what the old prophet old testament prophets called shalom we call it peace but it means far more than a mere peace of mind or ceasefire among enemies in the bible shalom means universal flourishing wholeness and delight a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitly fruitfully employed all under the arch of god's love shalom in other words is the way things are supposed to be in the beginning of the bible genesis chapter one and two is the last time things were good right um when people say life's not fair you're absolutely correct because now sin inhabits our world right sin is and, and the effects of sin right but there was a time and we don't know how long that time was where god's shalom existed and that was in creation Right? And the Bible tells us at the very beginning that shalom, the completeness, the flourishing, all the stuff we talk about, it existed at the beginning of Genesis. And the Bible tells us, and I'm going to talk about this towards the end there, at the end of time, when we, when we talk about whatever's going to happen, the way the Hebrews look at it, it's God's shalom returning to this planet. It's God's completeness returning to this planet. So shalom will bookend all of creation. In the beginning, there was shalom. And remember, Adam and Eve, they lived in harmony with creation, with the environment, right? They, did, they, weren't, they weren't destroying the environment. The environment wasn't destroying them. There wasn't any disease. There wasn't any mosquitoes. And I, I got to tell you, I like that part a lot, right? Because, you know, mosquitoes like me, right? I, they, they don't like my wife as much, but they like me. Literally, we're in the house the other day, and there's, my wife had left the door open. Mosquitoes came in, and I'm sitting there, and there's two on my arm and nothing on her. I'm like, it's chocolate, I guess. I don't know. Anyways, um, Shalom is this idea that the Bible talks about at the beginning. And, and, and one person said this, it's harmony. It's harmony. Shalom is harmony. The world we live in isn't harmonious. There isn't harmony in our world right now. And there won't be until Christ returns. But in the beginning of time, there was harmony. The second thing about shalom the Bible talks about is it's only found in God. See, we search for peace, we search for completeness, we search for harmony, but it's only found in God. Let me show you something here. In John chapter 14, verse 27, look at how the Hebrews understood what Jesus is saying here. Shalom I leave with you, my shalom I give you. 
I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Jesus is saying something very interesting here. And the Hebrews, the Jews understand what he's saying, but perhaps we don't. Jesus is saying the shalom that you look for can only be found in me. It can only be found in me. And do you know why that makes so much more sense to me? Because what we try to do is sometimes we say to ourselves, if my environment, if my life was this way, I'd be happy and loving God. If I had this correct in my life, if this mistake did not happen in my past, if I didn't have this addiction, if I didn't have this problems in my past, or if I had this job or this education or this status or this relationship, then my life would have shalom. And the problem is shalom can never be based upon external parts because the external parts never line up, right? When we think about our lives, we think about things that are disconnected. It's like puzzle pieces. Have you ever done a puzzle? If you go away to college, you have a puzzle there, right? And you do the puzzle, but you know there's like six pieces missing. And those six pieces are going to drive you crazy because you can't complete it. And you, can, you put everything together, and there's like six pieces. It's like, this is going to drive me crazy. Well, that's shalom. We put the puzzle pieces of our lives together, but there's pieces missing, and those pieces are God. That's why Jesus says, shalom can only be found in me. I remember when, we were, uh, when I was in Bible college, I think I've told this story before. Maybe not, I don't know. Uh, we had this um, pastor from China come over. Now, you have to remember, I was in Bible college in the early 90s. And uh, we, at that time, the underground Chinese church was just a rumor, Something we had heard about. Now people know about it and know. And again, conservative estimates are in China right now that approximately 25,000 people a week are giving their hearts to Jesus. According to missionologists, by the year 2020, that China will have the greatest number of Christians in the world. In a, a communist nation, they're going to have the greatest number of Christians in the world, according to missionologists. So back in the early 90s, we had this pastor come over. We didn't know his name. We, were, we called him Mr. X, and not because we couldn't pronounce his name, but because his identity had to be kept concealed because he was a church planter in China. And we're thinking to ourselves, this is fantastic. You know, we, 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 we hear a little bit about it, like about seminary students, we hear about what's going on in China. This guy came out and was telling people about what was going on. He tells this story. And I, I still remember it to this day because it so impacted me. Because that morning we were in, uh, it was uh, uh, something we call Spiritual Emphasis Days uh, in, in Bible College. And this, he was there to speak for us. And uh, he told us a story about planting churches. Now, planting churches in China is a little different than planting churches here. People would just go in a village, share the gospel, and then whoever became Christians, you became the church. And then he moves on, right? So he goes to this one village, and he, 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 this family has three daughters uh, a mother and a father, and they give themselves to the Lord. They, 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 they grasp a hold of the gospel, and they give their life, life to the Lord. The pastor moves on. Well, he comes back to this village, I think maybe it was like three or four years later, and he wants to check in on this family because he remembers them, right? The three daughters and all that. He remembers them. And so he gets back to the village, and he says, he finds the parents. He says, oh, where are your daughters? I'd I love to see how, what Jesus is doing in their life. And, 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 and the father and mother said, oh, they're in prison. Why? Well, they, after you were here, God called them into ministry and they began to plant churches themselves. But then the government found out and they put them in prison. And the problem is the eldest daughter is married and she's pregnant. And so the pastor who, who first shared the gospel, like, I have to go visit them. So he goes to this prison. Now, when I say prison to you, you have this idea of, of bars and concrete. That's not what the prison they were. Remember, this is rural China, this is a place where not, not much technology had gone to that point in time. So a prison was an open pit. 
right? An open pit where water and, and filth and garbage, right? So here it is. These three girls who are church planters who love Jesus and decide to give their lives to the Lord and just go around the village and share their faith. They're in this pit. One of them is pregnant. And they're, he says up to their, up their ankles or their knees, it's just water with filth, right? Because remember, the rain comes down and washes all the filth and it just, like, like, like just, if you can just imagine it. And he gets there and he asks the guard and he kind of tries to say, you know, I need to see them. I need to make sure they're okay. I have some food for them. I, you know, I want to make sure they're okay. And he calls himself their uncle. And so the guard says, fine, right? So he gets let in and this open pit area. And there they are there. And he says this. There they are in the pit. One of them is very pregnant. And the two others are there. And they're having church. Because there's other prisoners in their pit. And I don't know about you, but it's, it's like the pastor, like you have people that cannot leave your church, right? It's like, okay, I have a, you're not, you're not going anywhere. It doesn't matter how long I go. I got no PowerPoint, but I got, you know, anyways. So there's these three girls, one very pregnant, two other sisters. They're in this pit sharing the gospel to these prisoners. Some are violent, some are, and, and, and you see them, and they're singing hymns, they're singing songs, and the pastor gets there, and he begins to weep. He can't, they, and, and he starts talking to me. He's like, so tell me about your time there. And they go, oh, well, you know, the two younger ones could have gone any time, but they want to stay there to support their pregnant sister, so that if she has to give birth there, they could do it on her back, so the baby doesn't have to get in the water. And because people are coming to Jesus, they need to disciple him, so they want to stay there. So imagine this. Criminals are being brought to this open pit prison where these girls start leading to Christ. They get saved, they leave. And they, and they said, this is the pastor. This is the best missionary field ever because every couple of weeks we get new people and we start sharing Jesus with them and they go out. And the pastor says this. He goes, in that moment, I knew the kingdom of heaven was real. Now, why is that important about Shalom. Because shalom for them wasn't this internal concept that their life had to be perfect in order for them to love God. Shalom was in Jesus. And so when Jesus says, my peace, my shalom, I give you. That shalom, no matter your life circumstances, doesn't matter how life treats you, doesn't matter what happened, you have shalom. And that shalom is, I don't know what's going to happen around me. I don't know the outcomes of my life. But I have Jesus. We sang it this morning. Did you hear it? What do I have if I don't have Jesus? You sang it, and I don't know if you got it. I hope you did. But honestly, I want you to know something. Relationships will break down. Finances will break down. Your health will definitely break down. But if you have shalom, you have Jesus. So shalom is only found in God. In Ephesians 2, Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, is this. For he himself is our shalom who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the bear, divine the wall of hostility. See, the Bible sees it this way. There's only two categories of people. Enemies of God, friends of God. I know we've created this kind of middle ground of like, I'm cool with God. God's cool with me, you know. Uh, you know, I, 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 I get that, right? But the Bible says you either are for God or you're against him. There's no middle ground. And so, and so Paul says, that shalom is bringing two people that are separate, God and humanity, and making peace. And that's through Jesus. Brian said that this morning, right? Like I, I didn't send Brian my notes. Trust me, I don't. I, I, like, I, 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 I don't have a chance. But Brian talks about how Christ has, has, has made peace for us. Like, that's exactly it. That's shalom. And the final aspect of shalom, I think, is very interesting, is shalom is God's justice. See, when you talk about peace, what you have to understand is 
peace is very much connected with God's justice. Right? Now look at this here in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 59, this, it says this. The way of shalom, they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. By the way, just a little, little segue here. Peace and justice in the Old Testament usually circle each other like, like planets. Whenever the Bible talks about peace, in a couple of verses before or afterwards, it will talk about justice. Because however the Bible understands peace, it is directly connected to God's justice. The way of peace, the way of shalom, they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have turned them into crooked roads. No one who walks along will know shalom. Look at verse 9. So justice is far from us and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Do you see the people kind of fumbling around in the dark, kind of going, okay, I know there's shalom out there, but I, I can't see it. I can't find it. So now look what the prophet says in verse 16. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. Whatever you understand about shalom, you have to understand that it is directly connected with God's justice. We talk about justice today. God's justice transcends our justice because there's mercy and compassion in it. But there's also a path. There's also a a true way of right and wrong. I want to close this morning. We talked about shalom in the past. I want to read you a scripture. And I want you to close your eyes as I read it because I want you to visualize for me not for me. I want you to hear the prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah is about to talk about God's peace, but in such a way that I don't know if we've ever understood it. I talked about shalom at the beginning, but the prophet Isaiah is going to talk about shalom at the end now. In Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17 and onwards, this is what he says. Now just listen. Visualize the, the imagery that he's going to use here because it's rich. Look, I am creating new heavens and a new earth, and no one will even think about the old ones anymore. Be glad, rejoice forever in my creation. And look, I will create Jerusalem as a place of happiness. Her people will be a source of joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and delight in my people. And the sound of weeping and crying will be heard uh, will be heard in it no more. No longer will babies die when only a few days old. No longer will adults die before they have lived a full life. No longer will people be considered old at 100. Only the cursed will die that young. In those days, people will live in the houses they build and eat the fruit of their own vineyards. Unlike the past, invaders will not take their houses and confiscate their vineyards. For my people will live as long as trees and my chosen ones will have time to enjoy their hard-won gains. They will not work in vain, and their children will not be doomed to misfortune. For, the, there are pe- for they are people blessed by the Lord, and the children too will be blessed. I will answer them before they even call to me. While they are still talking about their needs, I will go ahead and answer their prayers. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat hay like a cow, but the snakes will eat dust. In those days, no one will be hurt or destroyed on my holy mountain. I, the Lord, have spoken. That's shalom at the end. That many of us who have jobs that perhaps we do not like, we live a life that perhaps we didn't choose and we are stuck with it. In the end, God says, my shalom, my creation, the way I want to see the world, the way I view creation, the way I understand your relationship with creation. Just so you know, heaven is not a place of clouds. 
It's actually of creation restored, of mountains and trees and animals living in harmony in shalom with God, with us again as well. Jehovah Shalom is the concept of completeness. And in this world today, we need that peace. The peace that can only be found in God. The peace that can only be found in Him. The peace that can only be given by Him. And I understand. I was just talking this morning to someone about a very difficult circumstances they're in. It's hard to know God's peace in that time. Many of you have told me over the years about your own lives and about where you're at and and without realizing it, you're describing the lack of shalom, the lack of peace, the lack of completeness. And I want you to remind you something. When Gideon was hiding and trying to provide for his family, God appeared to him and said, I am Jehovah Shalom. I am the God that completes you. I am the God that sustains you. I am the God that will flourish you. And not in wealth, not in status, but in spirit. So that when you go through the dark times, when you go through the hard times, when you experience pain and suffering around the world, Jehovah Shalom can be your God and his name can give you peace. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you for this morning and I thank you for each person here. God, you are Shalom. You are peace. You are harmony. You are completeness. And God, sometimes in the midst of our circumstances, we forget that. We forget about who you are and the name you gave us. God, I pray for each person this morning here that's here. For those who perhaps don't feel peace, who don't feel complete. To them, I pray the Holy Spirit, you would reveal yourself to them as a God of peace, of a God of completeness. Lord, I pray that in our circumstances, we would remember you. Just as Gideon was reminded of who you were. Just as this pastor met these three girls in the pit of a prison, they still had shalom, even though everything in their life had gone wrong. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would create within us shalom in our own spirits. Lord, we don't know the outcome of our lives. We don't know where things are going to go, but we do know you are God. And that one day in the future, whenever you decide, there will be shalom again. There will be peace again. There will be harmony in creation. There will be harmony amongst your people. But until that time, Lord, I pray that we would, as your children, be peacemakers, shalom makers, creating this world of harmony once again, of bringing your truth and your love to a lost and dying world. God, I thank you for your love and your mercy. In Jesus' name.